you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Um, two weeks ago, 11-year-old Hassan Akalaf boarded a train alone in the Ukraine. Um, he's an 11-year-old boy. He had two bags, um, and he had a phone number written on his hand in pen. His mother, Yulia, put him on the train as the Russians continued their invasion, but they really began to bomb a nuclear power plant in the town. And so as bombs kind of closed in around the power plant, the mother, rightfully so, realized that if that plant was hit, things would not go well for their family. But Yulia um, knew that she also couldn't abandon her sick mother who was unable to walk. This journey would require... Uh, the ability to swiftly travel. And so she sent Hassan alone on a train towards the Savlakian border some 700 miles away. This is a true story. This, this really happened two weeks ago. Um, Hassan, alone and 11 years old, by foot and train and with the help of good, good citizens and authorities, made it to Slovakia and called the number on his hand and found a relative that would give him uh, shelter. Hassan is an inspiration, um, and really what strikes me about that boy is how far he's willing to go for freedom and how far he's willing to go for life, really how far his mother is willing to send him for life. And so the question I want us to ask with this text this morning is the same one. How far are we, as followers of Jesus, willing to go for freedom? How far are we willing to go for life? This is some of Jesus' most radical teaching in all of the Gospels. It's uncomfortable. You should be a little uncomfortable reading this. You should be a little unsettled. And I think Jesus is trying to present his followers with this question. How far are you willing to go to be free? How far are you willing to go to enter life, as Jesus frames it three times? Enter life. Back up to verse 35 in chapter 9. Jesus has entered into Capernaum. He is is teaching his disciples in this moment because his disciples on the road there Um, without Jesus, to meet Jesus there, had been arguing something, and Jesus, being God, perceives it. And so Jesus realizes, my disciples have been arguing about who is the greatest follower of Jesus. And so Jesus calls them to himself, and he comes and says, whoever is first will be last. The greatest of you will be the least of you. And so he's flipping this kind of notion on its head for them. And then we're told Jesus gathers up a small child. We're not given an age, but I would guess toddler-ish, around three, like my daughter. Um, he gathers a child in his age or in his hands and says, "Whoever receives an innocent child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives the Father, the one who sent me." And so this is the context and scene for our sermon text this morning. Jesus is teaching about what it means to be part of his kingdom. He's trying to show people that um, you have, there's this division that must, must take place. You're either for Christ or against him. There's no neutrality when it comes to following Jesus. And he's saying, and to follow me is not easy. It's not an easy task. 
It's with that context that Jesus does this beginning teaching on holiness, aversion to sin, and what it means to follow Him and walk away from sin, and it's uncomfortably radical. Let's get um, our eyes on the text this morning, Mark 9, 42, and I want you to envision Jesus saying these things as He's kind of bouncing a toddler on His hip, um, which is already mind-blowing, but he doesn't hold back due to the innocent ears present. Jesus just goes for it. Here's what he says. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, he says, kind of nodding at the child, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to tend to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to what? Enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter life or the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where a worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He says, quoting Isaiah, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, therefore, and be at peace with one another. So let's let's take first the section regarding these these fleshly sins, right? Here's what we need to know as a foundational starting point. Jesus is using inflammatory hyperbole to make a point. It just means he's using exaggerated language to make a startling point. And I'm just going to pull back the curtain now. Here's the point Jesus is making. Sin is serious. Sin is serious. Righteousness is difficult and serious, and it takes sacrifice. The business of fighting and destroying sin, Jesus is saying, is sacrifice, but it's worth it to be free. It's worth it to claim life. And so, three times, he, he, the third time he uses kingdom of God, but the other two times he's referring to cutting off limbs for the sake of righteousness. He calls the kingdom of God life. For life, you should do these things. Let's break these down. First, Jesus says... Um, There's this sin of causing an innocent one to sin. So I certainly think this applies to us and can apply to us, right? He's saying if you're committing sins that are bringing other innocent people into that sin, specifically children, but also just anybody innocent, then what is the punishment for that? Well, Jesus says, it's better for you to die. I mean, a millstone around the neck and being cast into the ocean is a death sentence, (laughs) It is, he says, it's better for you to die than to cause someone else to sin. I think Jesus is warning us about this sin. I think it's an important thing for us to recognize and to be aware of. But I also think he's doing a second layer something else. Um, I think he is also talking about the original one that caused the innocent children of God to sin. Namely, Satan as a serpent in the garden who slithers up to the innocent ones, Adam and, Eve's, Adam and Eve, and causes them to sin. 
Now, Adam and Eve are going to be held responsible for their sin, but who caused them to sin if not Satan? And so Jesus is saying sin deserves death here. He's also saying the original one who caused my children to sin will get death. He's sentencing Satan to sin again in this passage. And then he goes on to do these other warnings, right? The other warnings all follow the same formula, body part. Body part causes you to sin. It's better to have life without that body part than it is to be punished eternally with the body part. He says it about the hand, the foot, and the eye. And really, he just wants his followers to think seriously about what does it mean to walk out of sin and into life and into righteousness, Right, sins of the hand are sins like murder and theft and hitting. Sins of the foot are the sins committed in places where our feet would take us, right? That we might trample others or that we might be led to the dark places in the world. And, and sins of the eye are sins like coveting, lust, jealousy, um, and things like that. And we could keep playing this out, right? Like sins of the tongue would be... Um, Maybe like not forgiving somebody or slander or gossip or um, inflammatory language. Anything like that could be a sin of the tongue. The hyperbole is, is jarring enough, right? The, these parts of our flesh are sinful and cause us to sin, and so we must be on guard. And here's how, here's why I don't think and scholars don't believe that Jesus is being literal here. Because if he's being literal, all of us got problems, like, there needs to be a lot less hands in the room and feet in the room and eyes in the room, right? If he's being literal, we got problems. But here's how we know he's not being literal. The disciples will go on from this moment to deny, betray, and doubt Jesus over and over again. Let's take Peter. Um, Peter will deny Jesus three times on the day of the crucifixion before the rooster crows. Um, and then Jesus rises from the grave, and he calls Peter to himself. And what does Jesus do? He says, open up, Peter. Let's cut that tongue out. No, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus asks Peter three questions to frame his doubt in a different way. He asks Jesus three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? In that moment, Peter is reinstated over a meal by a gracious question. Do you love Jesus? Peter's reinstated. So, from this one example, we can already kind of discern, okay, Jesus isn't being literal, but he is being serious. The lengths we should be willing to go to cut sin out of our lives should be pretty far. We should be willing to do a lot to cut sin out of our lives. Alistair Begg, a famous pastor, puts it this way, um, Jesus doesn't suggest that we negotiate with sin. That's so convicting for me because I find myself negotiating with sin all the time. Jesus doesn't suggest we negotiate with sin. He actually calls not for negotiation, but amputation. Or if you want, he calls for eradication. He calls us to kill sin. He doesn't call for us to, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and push this little sin down a little bit and try and get that. No, Jesus is saying, kill it. It has to completely die. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I'm going to say this again as I want you to hear me say this. Please don't go home and cut off any limbs. I need to make sure I say that. But 
maybe we need to cut off some access from our smartphones. Or maybe we need to cancel some streaming subscriptions. Or maybe we need to take a break from drinking. Like, we are in Lent, so I'm right here with y'all, and this text has been working on me kind of all week in this regard. Like, what, okay, if Jesus isn't saying that I actually have to cut off my limbs, like, what am I actually willing to do to walk out of sin and into righteousness? Is it just, like, put a screen password on my phone? Is that all that I need to do to, to experience a little bit more proximity with the Lord this week? Then, then why don't I do it? Why am I negotiating with my sin? The question remains, how far are we willing to walk? How far are we willing to go to grasp hold of life and freedom? Um, two verses at the end of this passage that we have to revisit uh, because they're confusing and complicated. So I'm going to reread them. Verse 49 and 50, Jesus has just finished talking about these three um, limbs to cut off if they cause you to sin. He's talking about judgment and what it means to walk in righteousness. And then he says this, for everyone will be salted with fire. So if you understand what that means, you'd be the first person in 2,000 years to get right out the gate what everyone will be salted with fire means. Um, and then he says this, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And so, he, these are confusing statements. It's not that we don't have any idea what everyone will be salted with fire is. It's just that Jesus doesn't elaborate on that sentence. He moves on to a new idea in salt and saltiness, although a linked idea. And here's, uh, so scholars have, a handful of ways that this could be interpreted, all of which are faithful and good. But I'm going to make the case for one way to interpret this. Uh, here, here's what I think is going on. Jesus has just been talking about punishment for sin, right? He's just been talking about um, fire and judgment as it relates to sin. And it's almost as if he's saying like, hey, while we're on the subject of judgment and fire, let's talk about um, suffering and trial and the fire that purifies us so that we would grow in righteousness. And he chooses salt as a metaphor for being a follower of Jesus, for growing in righteousness. So J Jesus is using a, salt, a, a metaphor and personifying salt as a way to describe the people who follow him. So brothers and sisters in the room, if you're a Christian, Jesus is describing you as salt in this passage. Can salt lose its saltiness? Have you seen, uh, this is kind of comical, have you seen the like, they sell it at HEB, it's like 2,000 year old Himalayan salt and it has an expiration date? It's like, this expires next month, but it's 2,000 years old. Like, the salt stays salty. <laughs> salt at its core is defined by what it is. It's salt. If you break up the elements of salt beyond salt, they're no longer salt. <laughs> Here's what Jesus is saying. Salvation that comes from following him, right? When you, when you place your faith in Jesus, when you become a follower of Jesus, it changes your elements. It changes the core of who you are. You are salt now, right? We are, we are salt 
And it, he connects it to the warnings about sin. We are being salty when we walk in righteousness. So I, I understand that our world uses salty in a new way now. Like recently, salty has meant like you're frustrated or jealous. Is that right? Is that like, okay. Like, is that, where are my Gen Z people at? Is salty, is salty frustrated? Jesus doesn't use salty that way. Jesus uses salty to describe righteousness. And so he's basically saying, look, if you're caught in sin and unwilling to turn and walk in righteousness, you're losing your saltiness. But when we choose to be followers of Jesus, when we choose to walk in righteousness, we are being salty. We're living into our saltiness. So that's verse 50, right? And then there's everything preceding verse 49, which talks about these sins of the flesh where we should be very serious to cut off limbs in order to walk in righteousness. So what does verse 49 mean? Everyone will be salted with fire. Given the context, it seems like Jesus is answering this question. How do my followers become more like me? How do, my fo- how do followers of Jesus become more like Jesus? How does God make us saltier? And the answer he gives is through fire, which fire is going to be continually equated in the New Testament with purification and trial and suffering, right? So, again, verse 48 talks about how seriously we should consider and take sin. Verse 50, Jesus says, you have been made into salt. You've been made righteous. So, verse 49 is this bridge which answers the question of process, take sin seriously, turn from sin, live into your union with Christ as salt, how, verse 49, by being made salty through suffering and trial. Everyone will be salted with fire. How do we become salt? Everyone grows in the image of Christ through trialing, trial, suffering, and purification that comes with the Holy Spirit. So, again, this is complicated, But I think the understanding of this verse gives us the secondary benefit, which is a key to unlocking a command in the New Testament. The command is to rejoice in our suffering. All throughout the New Testament, we're told um, to rejoice as we suffer, to rejoice as we suffer, to rejoice in our suffering, to expect suffering. It's not pointless suffering. Every time we're told to expect suffering, we're also told that it will make us what? Grow salty, to grow in the image of Christ, to grow in our righteousness, to be conformed more into the image of Christ, right? Romans 8.16 says this, we are children and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we what? We suffer with him in order that we might be what? Glorified in him, made salty, Philippians 3, 8 and 11, uh, Paul writes this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them all as rubbish in order that I might, what, gain, gain Christ, be found in him, not having any righteousness of my own, not having any saltiness of my own. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, suffering to become salty. 
So how are we made salty? Through fire, through suffering. I think this is a key to unlocking joy because joy in suffering specifically because if, if we're suffering and we can turn and say, I, this suffering, I'm, I'm not rejoicing in the moment because it's happening to me. I'm only rejoicing because this is making me more into the image of Christ than I was before it. And so nobody in the Bible is telling you, get over it. It's, it's much more complicated than that. We can hold intention to things that our world wants to put on a spectrum, suffering to joy. How can I get out of suffering and into joy? And Jesus is saying here, and I think it's going to be repeated all throughout the New Testament, don't pray away your suffering. I'm using that to make you salty. I'm using that to make you righteous. Do, do, we, inv- do we want suffering? No. But how do we rejoice in the midst of suffering? This is making me like Christ. Turn from sin, Jesus is saying. Turn towards righteousness and be made more righteous, turning from sin through suffering and trial. And guess what? I will be with you. My spirit will be with you. The power of my spirit will be with you to accomplish and grasp hold of joy. Listen, God gives us no instruction that we can't accomplish. It might feel just this mounting impossibility of finding joy in suffering, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's nothing given to us in Scripture that we can't accomplish. The question at the beginning, how far are we willing to go for freedom and life? How far are we willing to travel for freedom and life? How far are we willing to walk out of the slavery of sin that leads to death and into the freedom of life? from slavery, from the war? That's a good question, but the gospel asks and answers a better question. The gospel and what Jesus is setting up for is Easter, right? He's setting this passage up for Easter. The gospel asks this question, how far was God willing to go for your freedom from slavery and sin and war and death? How far was God willing to go and travel for your life. Listen, God gives up all glory and authority in heaven to live on earth as Christ, as a human. He lives a life of perfection. There's never a threat of Jesus needing to cut off a hand or gouge out an eye because of his sin, because he lives in full righteousness. And yet, he suffers. The millstone is fastened around his neck, and it's, it's really the cross of which he's nailed to. He's nailed to the cross, and he's not cast into the ocean, but he's cast in a tomb. His body is sacrificed for sin, and we know the payment's accepted because he rises from the grave. He rose on the third day. He walked out of the tomb. He finds his followers. He implores them in their doubt to bury their fingers in the wounds of his hands. And embrace freedom from sin, embrace life that comes with it, embrace joy in the midst of their suffering, which is coming to embrace him. Therefore, to be truly free from sin no longer requires us to cut off limbs. It doesn't require our animal sacrifices. It doesn't require blood from us. Jesus' body is destroyed. He's slaughtered like a lamb and sacrificed. His body and blood are offered up. And therefore, 
If only you believe unto him, the payment has been made for you and you can be free. If you want that today, right now, you need only grasp it. You need only believe it. For those, we're told, who believe in Christ and unto Christ, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Right? So, again, we're holding something in tension. How can this all be true, the links we're to go to to cut off sin from our lives, and yet Jesus, following Jesus is easy and light? Don't, don't let anybody out there tell you that Christianity is simple and easy or outdated. Look, like, we have a better way of understanding suffering, trial, joy, sacrifice, tension, the tension of this world that everybody, regardless of if they follow Jesus or not, is grappling with. How do I rest when I suffer? How do I find joy when, when the suffering of my life is so crushing? Jesus says, come to me, all who labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. It's easy. My burden is light. I will free you. My body will be destroyed in your place. And then from that point, the Holy Spirit is given to us to sanctify us in every trial Every suffering from there on, we can find joy in because it's just making us more into the image of Christ until the day we die or Christ returns. And then me and y'all will share a meal in eternity with no more suffering. Everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be united with Christ through trial and suffering, and we can find a way to rejoice in that through the power of the Spirit and the goodness of the Word of God that's been delivered to us. Jesus at the table will welcome us to come to Him and rest. And so, we will come to the table together, and we will rest in His accomplished work where no longer is our own flesh needed to be sacrificed for the payment of our sin. It's been paid, it's complete, it's done. We can work out of that with a yoke that's easy and a burden that's light. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you as the Savior who suffered, as the one who became low, who traveled so that we could be free and find life on this earth, and that we can look forward to a day where that life and freedom is complete, yet all the while we welcome suffering. We don't invite it, we pray against it, but we welcome it when it comes because we know that you are making us into your image. Gosh, that's hard, Jesus. And we stumble and fail. I stumble and fail at this all the time that the little ways that I suffer, even the ways that I'm just disappointed. Man, a friend let me down, or I let myself down. What I count it all is joy that you're making me into someone who reflects you more and more and more. I don't, Lord, but I want to. I repent for the ways that I haven't, and I want to walk today 
striving all the more. Where do I strive from, Jesus? I strive from your great sacrifice on my behalf. I worship you because of it. You are the Lord, the Savior, the King, and you have done it. So more than striving, Lord, I pray for rest for us. That we'd rest in who we are and whose we are as your people. And we pray that many would see the way that we live walking from sin, becoming more salty, righteous, more loving, and more at peace with ourselves and one another and our neighbors, that they would yearn for a God like that. And guess what? They have access to you. Would we not shirk from telling them who will know unless we tell? So would you give us the strength, Holy Spirit? We need to be emboldened, but will we do so out of your rest and love? We love you. We worship you. We trust you. Help us when we don't. In your name we pray. Amen.